Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. Nate Antetomaso, Evan Knowles here this week with Ben Vandenbroek. He is a 3D printing guru. He owns Art Lab in Lexington. He used to work on shows like Robot Chicken out in LA. You're not going to want to miss this. We talk all about the tech that he used to do some really creative stuff. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. My name is Nate Antetomaso up in Chicago, Illinois, joined by Evan Knowles down in Lexington. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. Let's just jump right into it. Before we get uh, into our great guest today, I kind of want to go off the top of what, we, what we're trying to say more and more now. We want to thank you guys for listening. That's first and foremost. We're so grateful for the audience that we have cultivated with this, and thank you guys for tuning in. Um, we do want to ask you to help us out even more, help us reach uh, some more members of the audience. And the way you can do that is just rate, review, and subscribe us wherever you listen to the podcast. If you do that, that's going to bump our numbers up, help us reach some more people. Uh, check us out as well, middletechpod.com. It's a beautiful new website. Uh, I kind of designed it, so I think it's pretty good. Uh, middletechpod.com is where you can learn a little bit more about us, and you can link to wherever you can hear the podcast. Just kind of a, an easy one-stop shop for us over there. And remember remember Middle Tech Pod in general, because that's where you can follow us on all social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Middle Tech Pod on social, and middletechpod.com. Dot com. We're going to do a lot of cool content across social. Yeah, absolutely. And we started this thing really to highlight all the cool stories that are happening in you know, Kentucky and, and more so in the middle of the United States, Midwest, Southeast. That whole region is really underserved when it comes to stories about technology and entrepreneurship. Most of the stories you hear are from TechCrunch or uh, sources like that about, that come out around the coast, San Francisco, mm-hmm. L.A., New York. So we're really trying to highlight you know, what's going on in the middle of the United States. And so our guest today is somebody that's doing something really awesome here uh, in Lexington. So that's kind of our mission statement. We always want to make sure we mention that so people know why we're doing this. Yeah, for sure. Let people know where you are and, and introduce our guest, man. Yeah, so we're with Ben Van Brook. Vandenbrook. Vandenbrook. Ben Vandenbrook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> sorry. Everyone screws it up one way or another. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a long, long name. So... We are here in Lexington off of Limestone uh, and his building that is the Art Lab. And what he does is he's a 3D uh, printing guru and he's a former uh, visual effects artist. So he's done a lot of cool stuff in L.A. I went to school out in L.A., a lot of cool stuff in Hollywood. Uh, and so he moved to Lexington and now he's doing a lot of 3D uh, printing, which is a new technology, relatively new for a lot of people. It's been around for several years, but it's really starting to uh, be mentioned more in the press and uh, the media. Um, so we're going to highlight his story today. How are you all doing today? <laughs> Good. Thank you for coming on, Ben. We appreciate it. No problem. No problem. I think yeah, 3D so... printing is is kind of an, an underreported on area in technology. You know, I'm super into tech and I barely know anything about it. Well, it's definitely up and coming technology in that there is a lot of potential in what you can do with it, but there's still a lot of a learning curve applied to it. So in, yeah, in, in big cities like, you know, L.A., Seattle, uh, New York, you're going to find uh, a bit more saturated with the technology. But out here in Kentucky, there's almost nothing. You have a handful of companies that will work with you or even talk to you at all if you're interested in doing anything with 3D printing. So we're kind of, you know, going into into this uh, bit of a wild west right uh and it's been yeah. like that for years but it's 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 gotten to a point now where we're getting mainstream acceptance and that's super exciting yeah that's awesome man well we'll get into exactly what you're doing uh, but i think we should just start at the beginning uh, and talk a little bit about your personal background like where you go grew up and how you got into art and all that kind of stuff sure yeah so let's start with where you grew up all right. Well, uh, I, I grew up in a lot of places, but um, my, my dad was a businessman and he owned mm-hmm. a uh, a fruit and vegetable import and export company. But he seemed like he was opening a new location every couple of years. So we had to move <laughs> alongside that. So I lived in Miami uh, and California or so Miami, Florida, California, 
various different cities in California, actually. And then um, we eventually, my dad needed to retire, so we moved to Kentucky when I was uh, 13, 14 years old, something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how I uh, fell in love with Lexington was, you know, I, I, I partially grew up here, but it, uh, I, I just wanted to come back after spending years out in California. Yeah. California can be exhausting. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> exhausting for sure. How, uh, how did your dad end up retiring in Kentucky? Oh, uh, he loved horses. He is, he, he was always a betting man. So he really <laughs> enjoyed gambling and losing a lot of money. Uh, he, it was a hobby of his to lose money. Um, yeah. but, uh, the, uh, yeah, the, I love that saying that is, you want to know how to get rich? Uh, you want to know how to get, uh, get a small fortune, uh, in the horse business? With a big fortune. Yeah, you start off with a big board. I love that joke. It's such a stupid joke, but it's great. Um, but it's it's very accurate. Uh, the thing is, is that he really loved horses, and the house he bought was like you know, a couple blocks from Keeneland, so it was very convenient for him to just you know watch the horse races and and go back home and, and drink with his friends. So nice. uh, yeah, we I I grew up around horses, but never really got into it myself. I was more into what my mother was into, which was computer programming and just being an, a complete nerd. I love my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So is that kind of how you, you started to get into more of the, the technical side of stuff? With, oh, uh, yeah. With that? Absolutely. My, my mom was cracking the whip when it came to learning how to use a computer at a very early age. I mean, I was one of those kids that could, you know, type blindly on a full keyboard. Um, if, I don't even know what my, you know, what is it, letters per minute or words per minute would be. <laughs> but I was I was always number one in class when it came to that kind of stuff, just because it, I knew it better than I knew you know, an instrument, you know what I mean? Or yeah. anything else, you know, the, it, that was my musical instrument was the computer. Yeah. And, um, I learned how to do a lot of stuff with it. <laughs> I think how that did you start to get into art from that more yeah. technical perspective. Uh-huh. What, what, what got you into that? Um, well, I mean, I was really into comic books when I was uh, a kid. So like early teenage years, I was reading a bunch of like dark horse comics and, uh, various, uh, just, just not really superhero stuff, more like indie comics and stuff. Cause, uh, I was really into, <laughs> I was really into Johnny the Homicidal Maniac and other Jonan Vasquez stuff. So I was a little goth kid when I was 15. <laughs> um, and that got me into black ink work and just generally working with, uh, paper, black ink on paper medium. And that's when I started drawing storyboard, what would eventually become storyboards for short films and other animated stuff that I would later do. So you said you're about 15 at that time. At that time, yeah, yeah. I had I even had a little gallery that I was running uh, two days out of the year at a, a gallery that no longer exists in Lexington called Gallery de Soleil. Um, but uh, I, it was just basically me and a bunch of my friends drawing specifically black ink on on paper. And I, I just always had a fascination with art in general, just because it was something that didn't require my brain to learn anything new in, in at least not, not the way that I think of learning new things, mm-hmm. at least in my, my childhood brain, uh, where I was really, I was not a great student. I, I was a C if not, that, that was my best grade was C grade, <laughs> honestly. Um, so art was like my, my outlet and I didn't realize that my outlet was, I was getting better at it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just something for me to, uh, turn my brain off and do, um, but the computing side of it really came because I was learning Photoshop and learning how to really, you know, uh, take my artwork to the next level. So it, it, it came back to computing pretty quickly. How old were you when you said this could, you know, be a career? This could be something that I, I do to make money. Um, I, I, I was 16 or 17 when I went to my first Comic-Con in San Diego. Yeah. And, um, the, uh, I went to a panel and I forgot who was speaking, but there's four different people. One of them I knew. I think James Burks was the guy that I had known on that panel, who is a, co- a web comic animator, or sorry, web comic artist. And he um, he was basically recommending that anyone that's going to be working in comic books today is going to be working in movies in the next two years. Any concept you come up with, eventually that comic book, the end goal of that comic is to become a TV series or a movie or a web series or whatever. And it just kind of made me realize that the goals that I had might have been too short-sighted. I was just drawing things on paper and trying to sell the, com- you know, like those comics, like Xerox at a local uh, Kinkos and stuff. And I was like, man, my scope's way too small. So I just wanted to go to film school after yeah. that. Um, 
and uh, yeah, and that's how that's how I at least got my start within film and entertainment. My mom bought me a camera, and uh, yeah, I didn't know what the hell I was doing with it, but I was still recording stuff. <laughs> wow. What what year was that Comic Con? Uh, ooh, um, 2005, 2006, maybe, maybe huh. earlier, uh, maybe yeah. even 2004. I'm not, I, I would have to look back, honestly. Yeah, I'm trying to think because that guy's vision when he said these are eventually becoming movies. Yeah, this is before the Marvel. Before Marvel, yeah. this is yeah. before the Marvel. Yeah. Like, I, I think Iron Man came out like three years after. I think, yeah, yeah. Or seven. So, so, yeah, it was either two or three years after I'd gone to that first Comic Con. I'd been back to a second comic-con after that and whatnot and then uh i went back once while i was working um at, at, at adult swim and i bet you will ask about that later but the the thing is is that uh it's totally different uh, perspective going in from someone who's a fanboy of things to someone who's being invited to there is a completely different experience so got it so San Diego was your first taste of, of California. Well, you lived there. I lived there for a yeah. little bit, but I was really young. Yeah. You know, I was going to like, you know, elementary school and mm. stuff. I, I was more trying to, uh, what is it, avoid the teachers than anything else. <laughs> I, I was a, such a loner kid. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, no, I, I San Diego was my first experience of going, huh, maybe there is something I want to do with my life that is, you know, in any way uh, <laughs> that people would actually want to pay me to do. Yeah. So... So you came back to Lexington? Yeah, I came back to Lexington after uh, uh, a full career. I wouldn't say a full career. I would say that I, I spent seven to eight years uh, trying to hack it as a visual effects artist, and it was doing a pretty good job for a little while, but the work dried up. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it, the industry was quickly getting outsourced uh, to the point where you know um, I was originally making a good chunk of money on an hourly basis, and then by the time I had left the in, left the animation and visual effects industry, um, you know that that money had been cut in half to a third yeah. of what it was. Let's back up a little bit. Yeah, uh, where I was going with that was you you came back to Lexington after San Diego, mm-hmm. and um, then you said I want to go back out to LA and go to school. Well, okay. What was that? What was that decision like to go? Uh, to school in LA and go to to film school. Um, How did you get to that point? Sure, sure. I mean, the, uh, m- wanting to get into film and entertainment, I, I, I wasn't a college bound kid. I can tell you that right off the bat. Uh, I would have failed every damn test that I was being given. Um, <laughs> you can you can give you call that the jitters or whatever. But I, I'm not. I don't think I'm a dumb person or a dumb kid, especially. But I don't. I I, I think I was very focused at specific things. I really liked watching Discovery Channel, and so I knew a lot about animals. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I I was really into art, so I you we know, talk I, about I education all the time on here. The the oh, system yeah. is a little broken, and just because you get oh, bad yeah. grades doesn't mean you're dumb at all. <laughs> Oh no! Well, I was heavily dyslexic um, yeah. growing up, so I had a lot of trouble engaging in reading um, on, on liter- literary pieces in general. Mm-hmm. Like, if, uh, I mean, anything. Um, I was a little better at, sh- oddly enough, Shakespearean works, just because they were already out of my vocabulary. So it was interesting <laughs> to read, or it's like uh, you know, listening to a foreign film almost in comparison yeah. uh, to how people speak. But. Um, yeah, I, I, I was definitely um, a D-grade D English student, and I had a lot of trouble, um, you know, getting into traditional industries, uh, traditional jobs and whatnot. At least mm-hmm. that was my expectation getting into it. Animation was kind of my, my you know, what I wanted to get into, but I never really had the chops to, to draw consistently like a real animator. I needed to do something else. So computers were the answer. <laughs> so... Nice. So you so you decided to you know stay with kind of a technical uh, thing with computers, but as well as then continue into your your love for for comics and art and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And you ended up in L.A. Why, why did that choice happen? Oh man, that's that was the that's the hub of it all, man. This is before mm-hmm. YouTube really took off in a big way. You know what I mean? I went to film school two years after YouTube launched. Wow. to give you an idea so it was like yeah. that that was that was the year that i graduated was 2008 i think were they talking about online video at all at that point oh it was a joke back then really? like it was not something that was um uh th- i was 
I was messing around with saying, hey, you know, my student film is going to go on YouTube for free. I'm just going to upload it. And they were yeah. just like, why would you do that? Like, go take it to the film circuits and stuff. I'm like, oh, I got rejected in every film circuit. No one wants to watch it. So I'll just put it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the, the thing is, is that uh, YouTube at that time didn't even have, you know, ads in a way that was integrated into the content. Like it was just the, the occasional web banner that would pop up and whatnot. There was not even a consideration of making money on YouTube. It was just yeah. upload it. Hopefully people like it and share it. That was it. So, um, the, when, when I, when I got out of film school, I needed to be able to, you know, make a living and, and take care of myself. So I was immediately looking for uh, an internship or taking on any side job. I remember doing a Pepsi commercial once that was, insanely it was a spec piece which means that pepsi didn't okay it they just made it hoping pepsi would buy it and <laughs> it's it's a terrible way to do business and um, risky, yeah. yeah yeah but they paid me so i'm not like you know i'm not complaining i'm not saying the guy like screwed me over or nothing but yeah. man it was a bad project like uh, I, I won't go into it <laughs> but I, I did what i had to to um, yeah. to pay bills and you know get through and i had help from family um in order to make the freaking 13 50 a month that was needed just for rent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a lot of money to a 19 year old kid. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. So um, the, the thing was, was that it wasn't until I landed my internship at uh, shadow machine, the guys who made robot chicken um, that everything started turning around, at least for my work out there. It was very much odd jobs here and there, but w- I didn't even know I wanted to be in visual effects. I just knew that I had, ex- they knew that I had experience with this program and they were like, here, you know, yeah. here's, here, we won't pay you nothing, but at least you'll get some a credit on an actual TV show. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> Start building the portfolio. Exactly. Exactly. So it, how it did was, you, how did you meet them and how'd you end up uh, in that internship? I found it on a website like Craigslist. Uh, and I just honestly, applied. Well, I didn't even apply. What happened was uh, they had an open call for interns because there was a, uh, and I'm not going to get into the details of this, but basically there was a technical snafu and they needed some people to come in and fix a major oversight on one of their, on on a show that that was, that was being done and it required a lot of manual labor. So Mm -hmm. when I went over there, I expected them to like watch my reel, to go through my resume, see the other works I've done. And they were like, can you work today? Cause we need help like now. And you know, normally that's a sketchy situation to get into, but I, I, I loved robot chicken on TV. So I was like, hell yeah, I'll just hop right into it. Yeah. And I had no idea that would keep me in, you know, busy and employed for three, three, three years or so. Wow. <laughs> so, so what I exactly? I haven't watched those, those shows. I'm sorry. I admittedly haven't watched those shows, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but how big were they back then? And, were they, you know, in their infancy because that technology was in their infancy? What, what was that space like then? Oh, I mean, 3D printing wasn't being used at all on uh, on the show at the time. But Robot Chicken was insanely and is still, I think, very popular on Adult mm-hmm. Swim. Um, it, it was a, a show that used uh, old, old toys, like from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and some newer ones. Like, whenever Seth had a, a particular interest in a newer piece of IP, he would put it in there. So like Halo, for example, mm-hmm. showed up in one of the skits. Um, I think that was for like an Xbox giveaway or something like that. Um, but almost always it was Star Wars toys from the 70s, uh, uh, odds and ends, uh, 80s toys, and just whatever they could find to hack up and turn into animated, you know, puppets. Mm-hmm. So, Did you work a lot with Seth Green at all? Um, I, I, well, as a visual effects artist, you don't really get to work directly with the creative heads. But, yeah. I, I mean, we were in the same room a couple of times. We went to see the screening for our Star Wars specials at Skywalker Ranch with George <laughs> Lucas. And that That's was crazy. that was awesome. That was, that, was, that was an awesome experience, especially for my older brother who came along with me because he grew up with Star Wars. He was like, you know, he's the big, big Star Wars nerd. He'll watch everything, even the animated Clone Wars stuff. He is all about it. Oh, so yeah. he had the time of his life coming with me. Um, but, uh, you know, we got our photo. We got everything like that. But working with Seth Green directly, he's a wonderful guy. He's an mm-hmm. absolutely nice, super nice dude. Um, I would definitely say that, you know, um, that 
the, these high profile people uh, like Seth Green and other celebrities in general, um, it's, it's amazing how much just respecting them like another human being is, is, is just so looked up on <laughs> because so many people either kiss their ass every two seconds mm-hmm. or they, and they, and they don't speak honestly with them or they, in, or they just in general are, are trying their best to, um, to please them. And I, I, I just, I, I never really liked that attitude at all. I, and, and it really helped that I, I'm kind of blind to faces. So I don't know when I talk to a celebrity half the time, yeah. Yeah. um, <laughs> Like that happened to Portia de Rossi for like a good 15, 20 minutes. I was talking to her. I'm like, oh, wait, I've seen you in Arrested Development. Oh, shit. <laughs> I realized who it was. Um, yeah. And, you know, and a few other a few other celebs. But I, I, I don't like name dropping either. But it was a few a few people occasionally that will, you know, that 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 I, I had the pleasure of working with for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. That's such a unique experience to to just be able to to go into such a big show, such a big IP like that, and just really like immerse yourself in it. Yeah, I mean it 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 was a it was an opportunity that I think that if anyone was was scrolling through you know Mandy or Craigslist or whatever other job sites were up at the time, they would have just skimmed past it really quickly because there's there was not even a mention of robot chicken on the application. It was just shadow machine. And I knew that company because I liked the show a lot and the bumps at the end said shadow machine. So I was like, <gasps> there's something interesting there. So yeah. I followed that. There was always stress. There was always that, you know, whenever you have a deadline, it can make you pull your hair out uh, with the stress. But um, if you find yourself to be an asset, you, you know, you should try to ride that train as long as you can. Absolutely. So how long were you there? Um, on and off for about three years, I would say, two or three, uh, somewhere in between that. It's kind of hard to say because when the shows go on break, you don't really know how long it's going to be sometimes. Um, but I remember there was one three-month break and then there was a six-month break. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it varies. But And we found work in the meantime. But the um, it also transitioning from an internship to a paid gig also made some dead air time in between that, too. Yeah. So, um, But uh, after... Shadow Machine, uh, who no longer... They actually make BoJack Horseman now. Um, Shadow Machine no longer makes Robot Chicken. Instead, it's Buddy System, which is Seth Green's own company. So, and it split off and fractured and, and you know went off to different studios. And when that happened was when I started working for um, Starburns. And Starburns are the guys who make... You know, who, who wrote Community and they... Uh, what is it? They, they they make Rick and Morty. That's probably the most well known piece wow. of content right now. Um, and uh, I, I, you know the people that worked for that company were awesome. I, I loved every. It's just a, it's just a smaller operation back then. I mean, there was maybe seven of us, six of us in the studio at any one point in time. So having that few people around you made you get to know people really well. <laughs> so I loved working at at uh, at both those companies. But my preference leaned to toward uh shadow machine i'm sorry towards uh uh starburns yeah so what were you exactly what were you doing on starburns same thing i was i was a visual effects artist uh as well over at, at uh starburns but they had me a lot more involved on their experimental stuff as well where they were you know maybe trying out something new trying out a uh a new concept pitching it to producers that kind of stuff i mean rick and morty was in the green light it was in the green lighting stage when i was working for um, uh, for Starburns, so they were they didn't even know if it was going to get picked up. Wow! It was uh, just Justin and Dan, kind of you know uh, going to meetings constantly with producers and um, at at Cartoon Network and whatnot. And when they got the green light, it was a very exciting day, a very exciting day for them. I, I can't say I participated in that. I was definitely on a different show working on more oral and whatnot, but I was in the room, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I got to see it all. So that was awesome seeing the, the, the day Rick and Morty got greenlit and the, um, what is it? And, and the, seeing the first pilot, it was only halfway animated when we got the pilot in, but everyone was so excited. We threw it up on the projector anyway and watched it, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, and that show is just blown up. Oh my God. Totally I, blown up. And the thing is I left, I left a month after it released. I'm oh. sorry. A month before it released. I'm oh. sorry. Oh. 
So, uh, like, uh, the, the company went insane. And now, granted, it's not like I had a job really waiting for me because the company was switching to Rick and Morty almost in, exclusively. Yeah. And because of that, it's 2D animation. There's not a lot of work for a visual effects artist on a 2D animated show. Yeah. Visual effects were more about, like, you know, everyone thinks it's all explosions and light and lightsabers. And it was occasionally, but it, it was really more about fixing stuff. You know what I mean? There was be there'd be a hair on one of the frames, or there was a, a hole in the floor that needed to get patched up, or something. Um, a stop motion particularly has a lot of little flickers and jitters and stuff, and it was my job to go into there and clean up the frame and make it look good. You know, make it look clean and smooth. Um, and uh, animation doesn't have that problem because the animators do. You know, they're 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 working on that as it's going. So a lot of visual effects have been minimized on a 2D animated show versus, um, you know, uh, something like stop motion. Stop motion is just, I had so much work to do with stop motion. It was, a uh, plenty, there's plenty of opportunity there, but when it came to animation, I just didn't really have a job anymore. You know, yeah. talking about some of the names with, you know, the talent that you were around yeah. all that. Um, well, I mean, Andrew Racho uh, is not like a well-known name per se, but he was my go-to guy. I love that guy. Um, uh, uh, Andrew was a visual uh, was my boss. He was the man, you know, he did the visual effects management and just in general coordinated a lot of the visual effects pieces for the stuff I worked on. And uh, he will always be my go-to guy whenever we're doing post or even voiceover stuff. He's great. Um, but uh, uh, in terms of the names people I guess know are um, uh, Dan Harmon, Justin Roiland and Malcolm Barrett would be the three. And Malcolm is actually an old friend of mine. He's my old neighbor. And oh my God, he's awesome. I mean, he's, he's on a show called timeless right now. And, um, and he's just in general, you know, kicking ass being an actor. Um, but he was the one who got me into all the studios. He was the one who was like, look, you drive me to work. You get to meet some people and see if you can find a job for yourself somewhere. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. So I just drove him around for the first six months that I was in LA. <laughs> um, but, um, the uh, but Dan Harmon is is definitely uh, an interesting character. Um, I never really got to talk to him at length or anything like that. He was far too busy of a guy to really just say like tug on his sleeve and go, "Hey, can I talk to you for a minute?" Like that. That, that was not. It, there never really was an opportunity like that. Um, but um, the uh, uh, I, I really talked to him only once at length, and that was at the uh, the screening for the pilot of Rick and Morty. And I made an ass of myself talking to him about something related. I think it was, I was talking about spaghetti cat out of all things, something really stupid. And I, it was just because Joel McHale was on his show and I had, there was some connection there. I have no idea. I made a complete ass of myself in front of Dan, but um, <laughs> the Justin Roiland though, on the other hand uh, is awesome. I, I interviewed Justin and the same kind of thing we're doing here with a, my, you know, like setting that all up. We had a we had a great interview, um, but I, I I got to talk to him at length about uh, we were originally going to travel to Valve um, Software together in order to talk about virtual reality. And the thing is, he later on would develop VR games. I mean, there's the Rick and Morty game and uh, the actually accounting VR and a Rick and Morty VR game. And uh, I, I felt like if uh, if we actually had gone there together, I could have possibly worked on Squanch Tendo or whatever his company is called now. Um, but uh, there's all that's the thing. When you look back years and years and years at, at these very creative jobs, there's a lot of missed opportunities, and they all yeah. missed because of you know maybe a date got said wrong or uh, oops, uh, you know I uh, my dog got sick and I needed to go do so, you know needed to go to the vet, and we missed out on a potentially great meeting you know that kind of stuff those kind of realities of life uh, are, are something sometimes it plagues me because rick and morty got really really popular yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um but the point i'm trying to get to though is that justin um is such a humble guy um he is somebody who um you know he he rescues uh, uh animals on on uh you know at shelters and whatnot and finds homes I've, when i was there he had two rescue dogs that were complete sweethearts uh and and he i remember going to work one day and he's like man i'm stuck here in meetings uh, uh trying to get a show trying to get the show greenlit is there any way that somebody here will stand in line for a Wii U for me and this was when the Wii U launched mm. And I was like, I'll do it if you keep paying me. 
And he was like, yeah, go do it. <laughs> so um, I got to drop off um, his Wii U after standing in line for three hours. We'll go to his house, dropped it off, and we, we tried to play some of the freaking update screen. Took two hours uh, just to finish updating the game. So, um, you know, again, there's always these little headaches when you look back and you go, man, what, what if I did get to hang out with him and shoot the shit and, and play video games with him for hours? But nope, there was an update screen on the uh, like, damn Nintendo. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, those would probably are my two most well-known people that I've worked with. I mean, there's... I, I technically had um, worked with Porsche very, very briefly because we were doing the. Um, we, I was do I was driving Malcolm every day to work on a show called Better Off Ted at that time, and uh, Porsche was the, the female lead on on that show. So that that was the. But again, I'm not a big name dropper. I don't really like talking too much about it, people that you know that, that aren't either me or the people I'm around all the time. So. Yeah. You had mentioned that uh, as you kind of continued your career out there, the, the pay got worse and the industry was changing. What what happened mm-hmm. there? Well, um, uh, uh, South Korea and um, and China uh, kind of took over um, the uh, post department in many different uh, shows, and I mean outsourcing was a uh, you know. <laughs> Outsourcing is a real problem in Hollywood. Um, you're either working in a farm somewhere, and I mean a render farm, like there's going to be tons of people surrounding you in a tiny, tiny desk, all trying to, st- you know, trying to make a film 3D by copying the frames and slightly moving them left and right uh, for hours and hours and hours every day. It's monotonous, awful work. Um, but shipping that out to, you know, a foreign country that can do it for half the price is, is too is too is too uh, um, opportunistic for uh, Hollywood. And if you know anything about Hollywood, is that opportunistic is how you can describe nearly damn every boss that is out there. Yeah. So, <laughs> so is that affects manufacturing? No, no, it, it affects it affects a lot of stuff, oh, and yeah. it's surprising how much it, it is in the creative field when you really start asking the right questions to the right people. Yeah, you know. And is is that kind of the reason that you decided to to get out of that industry and then eventually come back to Kentucky? Yeah, um, I mean, it's 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 uh, I had moved up. I felt like I moved up in life, and I got myself a house out there. I was renting it and stuff. Oh, nice. And, um, and the thing is, is that um, I quickly realized that I couldn't afford it. You know what I mean? It was just kind of crazy. Like I'd been out at this house in the valley for two years and I went, man, I have less money than I had two years ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I have just put all this stuff and effort into making it. And it it just wasn't, wasn't, it didn't have a, um, it didn't have the same excitement I had for the, for the next year coming up when New Year's came around. And when it, when it came to, uh, 3d printing, it, it, it was coming, it was something that I felt like, People were getting excited about. There was a lot of buzz about MakerBot and some other companies while I was working at Starburns. And there was legitimate interest from the people around me saying, hey, if you could make some model props for, um, you know, for our background sets, we would pay you for that. You know, and I was like, oh, shit, there's a potential. <laughs> this, mm-hmm. Excuse the language, but there's there's a potential there for me to make money doing something that I I, you know, I was not even involved with at the time. I just, I just liked the idea of it. So um, the, you know, moving back to Lexington was really about the opportunities that 3D printing had created for me during my last year out in uh, LA. Um, okay. There was a, there's a 3D printing startup in Pasadena, California, that uh, was willing to let me learn from them basically just annoy the crap out of them with really really basic questions like honestly this would embarrass anyone who's a first first year engineering student would embarrass the hell out of everything i asked them like you know <laughs> oh how does polarity work you know like like real stupid stuff and i was I, I i had to go into it completely blank slated but it turns out that was a a a a a, a, a that was a bit of a godsend because the uh, being completely ignorant of, you know, the norms of engineering and design and just, you know, building something, making something really taught me what people really expected out of the 3D printer. It let me translate 
what was happening with the technology versus what people wanted and expected from the machine. So I instantly fell into almost an educational role, yeah. you know, teaching people how to use 3D printers or, you know, constantly trying to teach myself because I'm completely self-taught with the 3D printing stuff. The Diego and, and, um, and Rich over at D's Maker in Pasadena, they, they were there and they answered my questions, but it was entirely up to me to understand what was happening. So, and that was back when the technology was in such a strong infancy that getting anything made was exciting. Yeah. Even if it looked like utter crap, getting anything made was exciting. Well, the, the machines are probably expensive, right? Um, or, yeah, I mean, they were, they were uh, over, you know, a thousand bucks or whatever. And that was really expensive for something that had no guarantee of working and was frankly just, and this is, you know, when the consumer 3D printers were starting to pick up and whatnot. And they were, and people were adopting um the, like i remember when the launch of the uh makerbot replicator came out was around the time when i or had already gone into my second 3d printer you know what i mean i was building my own printers so i was making my own components for the 3d printers with the 3d printers hmm. so the whole like 3d printing is the first self-replicating technology was something i had known from the get-go <laughs> you know because i was like oh my god if you can 3d print one, you know, one component from the 3D printer, why can't you 3D print all the components? And it's a bit of a fantasy now, but it's, it was something that got me started, got my gears turning. So, yeah. So what year was that when you first started working with that? Uh, I would say like 2011, 2012, yeah. Yeah. around then. Um, I didn't start Art Lab as a business until 2013 or about uh, six to eight months after I'd moved back to Lexington. Got it. And did you have to train yourself on also the, the AutoCAD side of it and the graphics of making those drawings come to life in a 3D printer, what was that experience like? Um, Translating what you had previously done sure. to 3D printing. Well, I, I was already very familiar with vector work, like Illustrator and Photoshop and whatnot. So translating from from that was actually rather daunting. My girlfriend, Sarah, uh, actually had far more experience in 3D. So we were printing off her models well before we were printing off anything I had custom designed. Um, Thingiverse.com was a wonderful... Uh, 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 springboard into all the things you can do with a 3D printer because people were making designs for other people to download and print. And so I was taking full advantage of that, yeah. you know, making cool stuff that I found online or that people around me that were creative people um, were wanting to get made. So I, I would say that uh, in terms of how I got into the CAD and design side of things was really by brute force. Like yeah. it was just, you know, I, I had no traditional uh, education related to it. I had to learn everything on my own, but luckily, uh, alongside the, the rise of this, you know, passion for 3d printing was also YouTube and all the other, uh, you know, social communities that were popping up online related to this technology. I would never have been able to get into what I'm doing now if it wasn't for these, uh, you know, nameless anonymous people, you know? Yeah. So how did, how did our lab come about? Um, uh, art lab, uh, is a, um, <laughs> it was a, a uh, it was, it was kind of like a fallback, um, when I was trying to become an educator for 3d printing and realized one teachers don't get paid anything. Uh, they, they, they're the, one of the most underappreciated careers in America is being a, a teacher, especially for kids. Yeah. Um, and that's a shame. Uh, and then secondly, um, the, it was demand. My, I needed more printers because people kept asking me to make stuff for them that required more printers to get done. So Art Lab became this, um, uh, you know, obsession of mine of where I wanted to be able to create a place where anyone can come in like Kinko's and print off stuff on their own 3D printer. Uh, there's a little bit of fantasy in that too. <laughs> Everything. The thing is, 3D printing technology was sold as this, like you know, uh, Star Trek replicator. Literally using the word replicator at times, and that is, you know, I think that was probably the biggest disservice that uh, had happened to uh, 3D printing because everyone had expected that this machine could do anything. They hit play and it doesn't look good, and they throw it in the closet after yeah. two weeks. Yeah. So that's a huge shame. Uh, not creating the proper expectation in the technology is a, was fault number one for MakerBot particularly. But um, my, my, my need to start this company was entirely based on 
the just the demand. I saw a demand. People were asking me to make stuff. I knew I could make money doing it. And uh, now that demand has, you know, boiled over into so many different industries, it's kind of crazy when you talk about all the potential applications that 3D printing can can be applied to. So what are some of those applications? Like, what do you guys mainly print over there? <laughs> um, I love this job because not every, because every day is different. Mm-hmm. Um, you have plenty of uh, guys who want to come in and just fix a broken part or something that is lost or um, uh, most commonly will end up getting, you know, small components in cars or boats or a, a lost hood ornament or a hood ornament that's not, that's, taboo to make or to to buy anymore like the pontiac indian head and whatnot yeah like you've made a couple of those and you know just just people demanding things that are really hard to find and unique Mm -hmm. um and the thing is is that that's kind of our rule of thumb is that if you can go down to home depot and buy it it's probably not worth doing um but if you but if, if it's a problem specific that to you that is a solution that would be um, it basically 3d printing lets us give you a completely customizable solution. So n- you're not, you're not, uh, you know, trying to compromise at all. You're always going to get exactly what's going to solve, you know, your, your problem, whether it's, you lost a dryer knob and you need to replace it, or you have a prototype for an invention and it's stuck in your head and yet you don't yeah. know how to express it. That's how, that's how we met. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Developing a prototype. Yeah, Absolutely. So would you say most of your clients are, are just everyday consumers or are you working with businesses? What, what's that breakdown? Mm, I'd say the most regular clients are corporations. Um, individuals from those corporations are trying to figure out a way to solve something that either traditionally would be very expensive or um, or just simply they don't have any other way to do it. They, they just can't figure it out. Um, the, uh, we do a lot of like jigs and assembly pieces. So like really specific fittings or housings that are used to help alignments when assembling, say, engines or uh, parts of tires or any, any, anything that basically has a very strong repeatable um, uh, application tends to demand these kind of specialized solutions. So uh, automotive like Yokohama, for example, is one of our biggest clients, and they, they order custom jigs to help in their assembly process you know, pretty consistently, um, big ass fans. They, whenever, whenever we have an overflow, whenever they have an overflow, cause they bought printers from me, they have some printers, wow, that's cool. but, um, the, uh, but whenever they have an overflow of work, they send it on to us and, you know, we, we make, we make a decent amount from that. So it's just a matter of corporations are the most common, but the most exciting tend to be consumers because they, you see the light in their eyes just start to shine with good, with possibilities. And it lets lets us kind of wean ourselves off of Amazon and Walmart and all that kind of stuff, and that's what's really exciting, especially seeing kids. Yeah, you know, yeah, because then the kids go like, "Oh wait, I don't need to buy a new coat hanger every time I it breaks. I can fix it, or I can design my own and make it different." Yeah, exactly, and make it fit exactly for. I can make a heavy duty one that fits my big ass coats I wear every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's. it's <laughs> It's all about these specialized solutions, and I love this job because I feel like every day I'm doing something else. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. That's how really long cool. and at what point do you think it's going to not be just specialized situations and become something that people might use regularly or more mm-hmm. frequently? Um, I think when it's more uh, because right now, 3D printing has entered the the lexicon of of, of modern discussion. So, like when they go, you always hear people say like, "Oh, why don't you just 3D print it?" You know what I mean? And then they don't realize what it takes to do that. Like that's that, that, that that's a lot more work than people are expecting to. So what we do is we make it not a lot of extra work. We, we kind of simplify the process for people so that when they come in and they want to say, hey, we want to uh, recreate this family heirloom, you know, we can go, all right, it'll just be 35 bucks. Instead yeah. of them going through all the technical details, all the limitations and whatnot. And we say, look, if you're not happy with what this thing looks like at the end of it, you don't pay anything. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Now, whenever you 3D print something, it, there's a set rate. There's a loss. There's a, there's a material a consumable that's used. So we have to always charge money for that kind of stuff. But whenever we're working with digital like files, particularly the 3D scanning stuff, we just make it a, a matter of convenience, yeah. you, you know, always. So what our, is our your, your pricing model? Is it based on time the machine is printing or how does that work? 
It's a, it's a, it's a little of everything. Um, the, the pricing system that we use calculates the overall volume of the design. And then on top of that calculates the material cost. So um, the volume actually acts as a multiplier. So whenever you uh, get bigger, we actually cut the material cost down based on a multiplier. So a lot of people assume that, oh, if we just print massive, it's going to be, you know, say like I, I charge a certain dollar amount every square inch, right? Mm -hmm. And we tr it, and you want to send something that's 100 square inches. It's not 100 times the cost of one square inch. It's actually closer to 50 or 40 times because we have a multiplier that applies a discount to the large volume stuff. And that's that counterintuitive sense. to a lot of other 3D printing services, but we do that specifically because we want to be competitive. We want to, we want more people to 3D print stuff and people tend to ask for big things. You know, we can print yeah. up to two feet. So printing, printing big things is, is something we want to encourage for sure. What's the competitive landscape look like around here in this, in this region? Um, a lot of guys in their garage <laughs> with a 3D printer. Um, so it's a bit of a wild west right now. Um, when it comes to the businesses we work with, occasionally they might have a 3D printer, but nine times out of ten it's broken or it doesn't work. It just it, they just don't use it, you know. So if it's um, we tend to be the headache-free solution, and people really like that. Um, but when it comes to local competition, other people running print services. I mean, there was a guy in Mount Vernon who called me today, and he was like, "Hey, man, I have a 3D printing service. I, I don't mean to intrude on what you're doing, but." I can't handle this one job and I just need some help, yeah. you know, and, and I love the, you know, the, it's, it's so communal. Yeah. Like everyone is, is willing to hear each other out and hear uh, our experiences and go like, yeah, we can't, there's too many fish in the sea for us all to, you know, get at each other's throats and, and, and you know, cost to be, be too competitively cost against each other. So I love that. I love being, a, I, I, it's kind of like what I imagine early computing was in the, in the early '60s and whatnot. When my mom was getting into it, yeah. you know, she was taking an IBM computer in a wheelbarrow. You know what I mean? And showing it off <laughs> to my grandpa. My grandpa asked, "Where's the old? Where's the little man inside that runs it?" You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. the, that, those kind of questions are the same quality, like the same caliber of questions I'm getting from corporate CEOs about 3D printing. You know what I mean? They just don't understand it, and they need someone to come in and make it easy. And that's what we do. Yeah, we there, just make it easy. There is something just magical about it. Just taking a drawing and a rendering, and it becomes an actual physical thing. Mm -hmm. there, there's definitely something magical about that. Yeah, I, I think that especially when you see it in time lapses on YouTube, it feels like like transmutation, like yeah. you're 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 manifesting something that doesn't exist. But when you watch it in real time, it still has that element of fascination, but it doesn't have that instant gratification that ordering something on Amazon does. And that I think that's the biggest hurdle that 3D printing has is that conveying that the convenience is still there. It still takes you two days to get something from Amazon Prime. Yeah. You know, when you 3D print something, it might take a couple hours, but it's only a couple hours. Yeah. You know what I mean? I can make something for you next day that would be completely customized. And it, it, it could be your cosplay helmet for, you know, a, your local Comic-Con. You, you know what I mean? And it's completely something that you uh, had specified to your own needs. And now, granted, the more custom the job is, the more money it costs to make. But we have all sorts of people that come by here that just need something tomorrow. And, you know, that's where we make a good chunk of change from doing that. Yeah. So if you're willing to wait, take five days, the pricing is very affordable. So to answer your question in a very long way, <laughs> um, when it comes to the, the way we price things here, it's based on how much you make us get off our ass in that one moment <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the scale uh, or the material used in yep. your design. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, where do you think the industry is moving, and and how are you trying to innovate? How is the industry innovating over the next few years? Um, in my opinion, the technology is is kind of we, we've settled on a lot of the machine technology right now. There's some new advances coming in here and there, but um, the real the real solution, in my opinion, is materials. The stuff you load into the 3D printer. Um, whether it's a composite plastic where it's combining multiple plastics together or you're using it in a kneeling, a kneelable plastic where you have the ability to throw it in the oven after it's done printing and make it a lot stronger or have it behave differently than what it was before. Um, there's all sorts of these, these solutions that make a lot of sense, but they really require a ton of research and investment 
into the materials themselves. And that's really where in my, when we start to say materials that behave differently when it's cold versus hot or the second time you heat it up versus the first time you heat it up, that's where everything's going to change. That's really interesting. That's so far beyond what I can imagine. <laughs> but I, I, Well, I mean, just to get, take it one step farther, and this is me being yeah. a bit of a futurist, so excuse any sort of uh, pie-in-the-sky no, ideas. But are, are you familiar with ferrofluid? No, nah, I haven't heard of that. It's magnetic fluid. Okay. So the idea is that you've probably you may have seen a GIF or a video on YouTube or anything that is a screw or some sort of spiral shape, and you see this like liquid spiking and and and, and creating a dynamic shape around it, and it's because the screw is magnetized and the liquid is behaving is flowing along the magnetic fields. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a patent right now for a three D printer that uses ferrofluid, so it can dynamically create three dimensional shapes live like in the moment that you want it and you could reach your hand into it and it squishes all about. But when you put your hand out of it, it retains its shape. So as long as it's in the 3d printer, quote unquote, 3d printer, as long as it's in that machine, it should hold the shape. So you could test out the shape of something, make sure it's the right size before you actually make a real one. Mm. For example, um, you could do instant visualizations where like, you know, like think think about Disney, for example, when you talk about an amusement park ride, if you have some sort of villainous, you know, ooze monster or something, you could have it come out of the water and kids could actually reach in and grab into his body. And it would just be parts of a, a, you know, a liquid that would flow (laughs) through their hands and come back into his body, like a real animated, you know, villain. And like, like there's, that may sound insanely sci-fi right now, but, being able to say flash cook whatever the ferro fluid became uh, and solidify it makes instant 3D printing a possibility. Wow! So that that that's you know if it's possible at all, it's 10, 15 years away. But that's that's totally within. I, I think it's possible. Yeah. Would that would the the fluid work just because the machine would output a specific magnetic field? Either a magnetic field or an audio wave. Um, there, you can influence ferrofluid with an audio wave as well. That's that's insane. Wow. Who uh, who's patent? Who's uh, who owns that? Oh, I don't know. I saw <laughs> I saw it on some futurist uh, uh, blog or something like that. But it does make sense to me. If it makes sense in my head, it usually is something that I you know I, I can eventually see a timeline for how it would. If it if there's no timeline to it, I don't even consider it a possibility, honestly. Um, like, uh, I never really would have thought Elon Musk throw the car in space. You know, I just didn't see that as a possibility. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, in, in terms of the, the world of 3d printing, in my opinion, it's all about materials and, um, and new applications. Yeah. Let's kind of transition to to Lexington where you see, uh, Lexington as a whole in the tech space and even a 3d printing space. Mm -hmm. What what were your thoughts there as, as far as feeling supported and, and your feeling of being here in Lexington and, and being in the space? Um, well, I love Lexington because it's a smaller town that uh, the traffic is no more than 20 minutes in any direction. <laughs> mm. And I love that after being stuck in L.A. traffic for two to three hours every day. Oh, God. Um, I'm glad that's no longer an element in my life. It's one of the main reasons I moved back. Um, uh, but like the, the thing is, is that Lexington, and this is not something I planned when I moved back to Lexington, but it turns out Lexington is an amazingly, uh, sorry, is an amazing catalyst city. It's somewhere where you can come in and incubate a business, experiment with an idea, try to see the market value of something in, in real America. You know what I mean? And I say real America with a uh, a bit of an asterisk. It's the America that tends to adopt things in mass that will go to McDonald's. Oh, sorry, that will like go to Taco Bell and buy nacho fries in full. You know, yeah. and and like it's these kind of people that if it works in Lexington, it works in just about everywhere else, right? So um, I, I I think that when it comes to uh, 3D printing, if it works here in Lexington, I can get it to work in just about every other city. Um, even though if it's on a small, like I, I have a, a vision for this company to eventually get to the point where we can we can automate and make it such a small operation that one person in you know middle of nowhere Alaska can run an art lab operation and still be interconnected with our network of of operator you know, of, of individuals doing this, but they can do stuff locally for people. 
that are in under this, your brand. Yeah, under the yeah. branding. Yeah. So <laughs> even the smallest of markets, if we have a share of it, we can profit off of that. So I guess that would be the end goal of this company in five, ten years would be that I want to see an art lab in every town at least the size of Lexington or smaller. And I say smaller specifically because the the bigger you go, the more competition there tends to be within this 3D printing space. Yeah. Where where do you see the improvements that need to be made in Lexington? What what are some things that that it can improve on or make you feel more supportive? Um, you know, just just like Lexington in general. Yeah. Just uh, have you felt there's anything missing in business and um, entrepreneurship, that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think that the Commerce Society in Lexington is is fantastic. Yeah, they do great work connecting you with relevant people. I mean, I talked down with a former CEO of Lexmark. Uh, big time. Yeah, big time yeah. guy. And uh, David was a wonderful. Um, I, I'm sorry, I don't know. I forgot your last name now. But like David is a great <laughs> guy who sat down with me and because so, at the time I was I was fiddling away with uh, making 3D printers, like building, buying wow. all the parts yeah. and, and building them myself for anyone that wanted one. Um, and uh, he was like, "You're you're wasting a lot of your time, man. Just sell the stuff the printers make. Yeah. You know, be the Kinkos, like, like you originally said you wanted to be." And I'm like, yeah, all right, all right, let's do this, let's do this. And um, so he he changed my direction into what was the most lucrative, which makes the most sense coming from that guy. He would pick the most lucrative option, and so often I should have picked in the first place. <laughs> but um, but yeah, yeah. Overall, though, um, you know, they connect me with the right people um, to get started with this business. But I would say that what Lexington lacks is um, I think that there's not a lot of um, uh, uh, things to do for people. Like I don't drink. Yeah, I'm not yeah. a drinker. Um, and the thing is, is that after six o'clock, finding something to do that doesn't involve getting hammered is <laughs> near impossible in Lexington. Yeah. Um, so I think that having more support for a healthy nightlife would be great because my job is almost entirely um, my, my job really starts at about three or 4 PM because that's when the orders all come in yeah. and I'm printing through the night. So you kind of have to be a night owl and Lexington not having a strong night owl community, like is, uh, can be a little, little, uh, lonely sometimes. What's an example of one thing you would like one business you'd like to be here that you would, uh, you know, spend your time entertaining yourself with more aerospace businesses. Um, space tango is great. It's a Lexington yep. Um, you know, satellite company. Um, but I, I, I will say that having more industries that are related to uh, aerospace, aeronautics, just in general, anything related to um, to flight or or, or just like um, uh, even even automotive stuff is just a bunch of auto body shops here. But getting getting uh, Toyota involved would be great. They're already here, but they have a Open very Georgetown. strict pipeline. Yeah, they have a very strict pipeline of how they work and who they work with, mm-hmm. and we're just simply not on that list. Yeah. So getting on that list would be amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. But, yeah. Got it. Awesome. All right, what do, you, do we want to ask any, any question? What, what do you want to do from here, Nate? Um, well, let's – I mean, Ben, let's give you a chance to kind of plug your company and everything. Um, okay. We'll we'll cut we'll cut this part here, but I'll just ask um, you know where people could find you, and you can you can say whatever you want from there. Sure, sure, happy to do so. Yeah. Cool. Well, before we jump off here, I just want to Ben. I want to give you the chance to kind of share what you're doing. Where can people find Art Lab, and and where can they find you? Sure, uh, Art Lab is uh, online at artlab3dprinting.com. Uh, I know it's a bit long, but A R T L A B. <laughs> just search that on Google, and you'll probably find us especially if you search Kentucky next to it or 3D printing. So Art Lab 3D printing, you'll definitely get it. Um, but uh, uh, otherwise, we are here in Lexington, Kentucky at 572 North Limestone. Um, you can give me a call uh, just about any damn hour of the day. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I can give you advice on your 3D printer or whatever you want. Um, now, granted, I can only take so many, but... Uh, the number for that is 859-903-5857, and you can just give us a call, make an appointment, and see what we got going on. Um, but, yeah, we are strictly appointment only. That'll be the only thing I got to say on that yeah. because um, some people show up at our door at 8 a.m. in the morning, and I'm still very much asleep. So <laughs> um, uh, definitely make an appointment before coming by. 
but uh, we we specialize in uh, making stuff with 3D printers, uh, using 3D scanners, and just in general being a consultant for 3D printing. So if you have any questions related to manufacturing with this process, we're here for you. Awesome. It's great to have talent like that in Lexington, and I'm looking forward to watching you guys moving forward.